0: on sunday evenings we've been in a study called theology for life and essentially what we're doing as we go through this study is look at a a classic overview of systematic theology as it flows out of the bible that helps us with our framework of who god is and what it means to know him and serve him and why the truth of the bible matters and if you have not been with us for all of these weeks Uh, The podcast and audio is available. We try to post those kind of as a grouping together on our Facebook page if you'd like to catch up with that, and they also are rolled out uh, on iTunes if you'd like to catch up and follow along as we study this together. And tonight, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, the doctrine of sin. Now, I realize this is a tough subject, but it is very important because without an understanding of sin... We can't really understand salvation. Without understanding the problem, we can't have a good concept of the solution. We know that modern morality, which is based on community standards at best and personal preference at worst, is a problem and is very adamantly opposed to the idea of biblical truth who God is, who we are, what's wrong, and what the solution is to what's wrong. And as you look at modern philosophy and just the biblical uh, opposition that is against the worldview that we hold, against the the whole biblical concept, it's a serious situation that we find ourselves in. I got a text from our oldest just a couple days ago, and as most of you know, he's at a major university, 37,000 students and on the back of the student newspaper it says urge it's a headline urge and hashtag abortion positive tour is now on our campus and there's what it says about the abortion positive tour that's now on campus we are loud proud and unapologetically abortion positive and then in bold letters in the center of the ad a full page ad it says no shame no stigma no apologies, learn more, and it gives the website, and then down at the bottom it says that it was paid for by uh, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. And that's just one example. This is not new to university campuses, but it certainly is reflective of what's happening. And one of the reasons that university campuses are so problematic is that so many people are influenced by it, and the generation that's coming out That's the mentality that they're getting. And as a result of it, even many rooted and anchored young people, or seemingly so, end up falling away and kind of falling into the cultural mores and the mindset of people who don't believe what we would believe from the Bible. I found another piece online. It said this, the disgusting myth of original sin. There is no such thing as sin. Sin. People do good and bad things, but there is no such thing as sin. Sin is a myth. The concept of sin was created as a recruitment method to get you to join an immoral religious organization and to extort money from you. Religious leaders and believers tell you that you have an imaginary problem, and coincidentally, they have the magical cure for your imaginary problem. These are not isolated ideas that are coming out of culture. This would be the predominant thinking by many people. And as I referenced this morning, unfortunately, sin is not a popular topic in the church either. There are a lot of voices that are encouraging pastors and churches to avoid talking about it because it's negative. It discourages people. It might drive them away from whatever our uh, concept of, of faith and church is. But there are two things that are clear that are kind of foundational about our study tonight. The Bible declares the existence and the reality of sin and human life displays the fact that it is very much in existence. You don't have to look far to get support of your understanding that there is in fact something that is wrong in something that is called sin that the Bible presents. And when you look at the total record of the Bible there is reference after reference to this issue of sin, pointing us ultimately to the hope that we have in the redemption that we have in Christ. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to ask and answer several questions as it relates to this subject. And the first question I want to ask tonight is what is sin? It's a very basic question, but it's important. What is sin? Well in the Hebrew and which is the Old Testament predominantly There are at least eight basic words which describe sin, which are translated as bad, wickedness, guilt, sin, iniquity, error, wandering away, and rebel. So if you're looking for a definition of what sin is, it is, at its most basic level, disobedience to God. It is doing what God said not to do. Or not doing what God said to do. It is willfully disobeying God or ignoring something that God has said is right that we should be doing. Now in the Greek, in the New Testament, there are 12 basic words which describe sin. And they are translated as bad, evil, godless, guilt, sin, unrighteousness, lawlessness, transgression, ignorance, going astray, falling away, and even hypocrisy. The word that is most frequently used is hamartia which means missing the mark and that's the definition most of us have heard if we've been in bible study any time at all or we've heard preaching that sin is is missing the mark so what sin is is it's missing the mark of God's holiness and this is what Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so we have missed the mark of God's glory We've missed the mark of God's holiness. We've we've missed the aim that would keep us in line with who God is. God has a high and holy standard of what is right. And the high and holy standard of what God has, of what is right, is in perfect keeping with the character of God who is holy. So if God is holy, then what in turn will follow from that is that He expects us to live as holy people and anything that does not measure up to what God's expectation is for us is missing the mark or it's falling short. So all people fall short of God's high and holy standard. We've all missed the mark like an archer's arrow would fall to the ground because it fell short of its target. In the book of Judges, it records 700 men in the tribe of Benjamin, and it says that every one of them could sling stones at a hair's breadth and not miss, Judges chapter 20 and verse 16. The word translated miss is rendered sin in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, and then it's translated that same way 200 times in the Bible as a predominant idea of what sin is. It's missing the mark of the measure of God's holiness. Another word is anomia, which means iniquity or lawlessness. That's an idea that's used in the scripture by Peter, who used the word lawless when he referred to the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's association with them. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, for that righteous man Lot dwelling among them and seeing and hearing Vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, so the idea is not just doing what breaks the law of God, but it is doing what defies the law of god so it 's not only action it 's also intent it 's not just the ultimate it 's also what leads to the ultimate and John wrote in first John chapter three and verse four that sin is transgression of the law of God. So without the law, contrary to the law, violating the law, rejecting the law, refusing to submit to the law, all of this describes what sin is. The holiness of God revealed to us in the commandments and the law of God and then expected of us to live it out. Now to go even further with this, Scripture says in Romans 14 and verse 23 that whatever is not of faith is sin. So it's not just overtly disobeying God and just purposefully just ignoring what God has said to do. But it's also anything that we don't do of faith. Now think about that. How much of our lives do we just go through the motions? We're just kind of doing our thing. We're going along. We're passing the time. We're carrying out our responsibilities. And yet the Bible says we're to do everything that we do for the glory of God and anything that we're not doing of faith is sin. And that takes it to a whole nother level of our understanding of what sin really is. The second question tonight is where did sin come from? Where did sin come from? Sin made its appearance first in the angelic creation. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Jude 6 and the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until judgment of that great day. You're familiar probably with this account, Lucifer, who became the devil, led the rebellion. We have some insight into it in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 through 14. God in the mystery of his will gave to his angels a measure of free will. They were to serve him, to obey him, to do what is right. And Lucifer, who was created in the highest order, was not satisfied with what God had given him to do and who God created him to be. He wanted the position that rightfully belonged to God and God alone. It was his pride that led him, dissatisfied with the place God had given him, to rebellion against God, leading with him an untold number of angels who fell from the presence of God and were cast out of heaven. Now, it's important as a side note here, but also as a central note for us to understand the reality of angels and demons as we know it today, and also the spiritual enemy that we have, the devil, who now prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes because of our naturalistic worldview in this country, even people who are Christians don't see things as spiritually as they should. And I'm not saying that we should hyper-spiritualize everything that everything needs to be super spiritual. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we need to recognize the supernatural. And there are other parts of the world where people seem to be more in tune with the supernatural, even when it's in a non-Christian kind of a way, that the power of the supernatural works of God seems more evident in those contexts. And we have among us, first of all, angels who have been created by God as ministering spirits, Angels go forth from the throne of God to do the will of God. I'm convinced there are many times where God dispatches his angels to uh, protect us or to help us in some way, and we never even know it. Perhaps we'll know it when we get to eternity and we find out all the ways that God's hand has been upon us through the years. So we have the good aspect of the good angels who are doing and obeying the will of God. And then there are Demons. Those demons are among the number who were cast out of heaven, those who have been freed to roam the earth at least and are not bound in chains. They are doing the bidding of the devil himself. And When I see some of the heinous things that happen in this world, yes, people are responsible for the things that they've done, but I have to say it has to often be as a result of demonic activity. The hurt and the horrific things that happen. So much of that's demonic activity, and we dismiss it. And I think with this drug issue that we have going on right now, that opens people up even more so to the influence of evil, and there are things that happen that would not otherwise have happened. And they're led by satan himself who is opposing the work of God, opposing the people of God, we know their ultimate demise, we know the judgment that's going to be upon them in hell, but in the meantime, we are in a real spiritual battle and this is why the apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 6 of us battling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So we're battling a a higher battle here than what is often in front of us. We often think it's flesh and blood when in fact it's the principalities and the powers and they're very much at work. But where did sin come from among people? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that by one man, sin entered into the world. Romans 5 and verse 12. Sin came as a result of the action of Adam and Eve when they rebelled against the plan of God. I'd ask you to turn your Bibles just for a moment. Let's look back at the recounting of that in Genesis chapter 3. This is the account of what happened. Just to set the scene, Satan appears here in this moment as the serpent, uh, as an angel of light, no doubt. You understand that much of the opposition that we face is not these ugly images of demons and these things that we would be overtly afraid of. That's not how the devil presents himself primarily. He parades as an angel of light. And what that means is he parades in attractive ways. He comes very subtly. He comes in ways to to twist the truth and to turn the truth just a little bit. He's very active in churches, trying to lead people away from God, inserting false teachers among the people of God, inserting opposition from among the people of God. All these things are spiritual activity that is not from God. And here's where it all started. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Chapter 3 and verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, two thoughts here before we get too deep in this passage. One, he was cunning, so he was deceptive in his presentation. The second thing is the attack has always been and will always be on the word of God, always. It it never changes. The presentation of it might change, the particular subject at hand might change, the mode of attack might change, but at hand is always the issue of, did God really say? And that's what we're dealing with right now in this culture that we're in. He says in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then he asked, God did, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said then to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband. yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of a painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Stepping forward here is part of our understanding fundamentally of a biblical worldview. A worldview asks some basic questions. Number one, where do we come from? The world would answer that evolution, naturalistic process, chance, mutation. That's how they would answer it. The Christian would answer it, who believes the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then the second part of a biblical worldview, uh, or any worldview, but, and then we define it as biblical, is what went wrong? I mean you don't have to be terribly spiritually sensitive to look around and see we got some problems i mean we're a mess the world is confused and confounded so what went wrong well again the world would say we just need more advancement we need to evolve to a higher state we need more education we need more money they put all these different answers on it of of what the problem really is And how we would answer that, what went wrong, is that sin entered into the world. Who made us? God. Why are we in the mess we're in? Sin. The third part of a a worldview would be, what's the solution? What now? As already indicated, the world will give you all these different answers of how we need to improve ourselves. And God says there's only one way to... Deliverance, and that's through Jesus. And that's the first promise of the gospel, right here in Genesis 3 and verse 15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And then the last part of the worldview would be, where are we going now? The naturalistic worldview would tell you, they're going to bury you, they're going to put you in a hole, and the dirt's going to be over, over you, and that's it. You're just like any other animal. And The Bible says, "No, there's an eternity. It's not all there is. All people were created to live eternally when they came into being. But where we live eternally is a whole nother altogether different question. So this is a very important subject. And this gives us insight into where sin came from. And I understand that there's some mystery in in all of this. Did God know what was going to happen in the garden? We would have to say yes, because he's omniscient. Could God have prevented what happened in the garden? We would have, again have to say yes, because He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. But what it all comes down to is the issue of free will and man's misuse of it in making the wrong choice to disobey God, to rebel against God, and then the consequences that would follow with it. That's where sin came from rebellion against God. Next question here is what is the impact of sin? What is the impact of sin? Well, back to the passage that I reference in Romans chapter 5, in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So we think about it this way. Adam was the first man and the father of all men. And Romans 5 is speaking in that regard of imputed sin the idea that we are sinners first by nature because we are born under Adam and under the curse of sin post fall in the midst of all of this mess that we see deeply impacted by our sin that was passed to us through Adam. We are sinners by nature. Psalmists put it this way in Psalm 58 and verse three, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. But the second part of it is we are sinners by choice. Now this is important. I don't think anybody would deny the fact that we all have done wrong, whether or not you define it as sin or whether or not you give it biblical terminology. All people have done something that's not good. That's not Healthy, it's not the best. And the Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, whether or not we have a full on understanding of the fact that we are sinners by nature, we all can agree by looking at our own experience and our own lives and our own choices and our own decisions and our own record that we are definitely sinners by our choice, not just by our nature. A little further down in Romans 5 in verse 18, he says, Therefore, as by the offense, one man's judgment uh, came upon all men to condemnation, and by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Thomas Whitelaw wrote in 1909, It is extremely doubtful whether any intelligent person whose moral intuitions have not been completely destroyed or whose mental perceptions have not been blunted by indulgence in wickedness, can successfully persuade himself permanently that sin is a myth or a creation of the imagination and not a grim reality. He goes on to say, sin is a quality or condition of soul which exists in every child born of woman and not merely at isolated times, but at all times and at every stage of his career, though not always manifesting itself in the same forms of thought, feeling, word, and action in every individual or even in the same individual, but it has affected extensively the whole race of man in every age from the beginning of the world on in every land beneath the sun, in every race into which mankind has been divided. Sin is a pervasive problem. And because of sin, there's guilt. Now, it's interesting how the searing of the human conscious, conscience and the pervasive acceptance of sin in a culture minimizes the understanding of guilt and the reality, therefore, among people. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, there was a time in this country, and I'm speaking of this country alone at the moment, in my life of experience in almost five decades now, or at least a better part of it, when you could talk to somebody when you were presenting the gospel, and it was pretty easy to get them to the point that everybody was a sinner. Now, one of the common responses that people often say is, well, yeah, I understand I've sinned, but you know, I've never killed anybody. You know, I've heard that a thousand times over. But we're in a really strange time where a lot of people won't even agree with the fact that they're sinners or that there even is the idea of sin. I mean, that's how far afield we've gotten in this country. It's a very interesting day to share the gospel and to interact with people about the truth and to even get them to the point of understanding their lostness so that you can tell them the answer that comes in Christ. But guilt for our sin comes from what we learn in God's word and when we're confronted with his holiness. So that's why it's so important that the role of the church be to continually proclaim who God is and present the truth of the gospel. And then we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This afternoon, I went to visit Brother Ben Bess. As many of you know, he's had a lot of health problems lately and has had some real issues. He's doing a little bit better, thank the Lord, uh, and uh, his mind was good and clear today. His body's still weak. He's trying to recover a little bit, but there were two gentlemen that were there making a visit uh, to Brother Ben over at the uh, rehabilitation facility, and it, for those of you that know Ben, you know that. He, for decades, has been faithful in leading other people to Christ. In fact, he worked bivocationally, ran a bread truck route and other bivocational jobs, and preached for 60 years. And I've heard multiple stories of people who said that they came to faith in Christ because of his witness. And I've heard some stories of some men who people would have never thought would have been saved, but Brother Ben was faithful to witness and there was an older gentleman there, and he said to me, as we were talking, he said, I got, to tell you a little, I got to tell you a little story about Brother Ben. He said, years ago, he would come to my door. He said, I'd go and hide. He said, I tried to hide from him the best I could. He said, and Brother Ben said, he chuckled, and he said, yeah. He said, but you couldn't hide very well in that trailer you lived in. And he said, I know, curtains are kind of thin, but I always wanted to hide from you. But here's what he said. He said, one day, Brother Ben came to my door. He said, and the Holy Spirit had gotten there before Ben had. And he shared with me again, he said, and I came to faith in Jesus. He said, how many years ago has that been? Neither one of them could remember how long it had been. But it illustrates beautifully the the truth that guilt for our sin comes from an understanding of the gospel, which means we've got to share it with people so that they can hear it. And then the Spirit of God convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment And then we're able to respond in faith. That's what happened to him. We all have similar stories at different times in our lives where it's like the light went on and we understood our guilt. And that's what happens with sin is is it brings guilt. But the situation is what are we going to do with the guilt that we have? Isaiah 1 and verse 18 says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. Romans 3 and verse 19 says, now we know that what the things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Guilt comes when we recognize God's standard, that we've disobeyed God and that we're in a predicament. It's not the end of the story of guilt though. God judges sin. Again, this is not popular. Well, don't you judge me. Don't you call what I'm doing wrong. Don't you be judgmental. You're bigoted and you're uh, all these things because you might believe that there's something such as right and wrong. But the Bible says God judges sin. Romans 3 23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6 23 says the wages of sin is death. Now, there are two primary kinds of death that are referred to in the scripture. Uh, The first is separation of the soul from the body, which comes to everyone. The second is the final and eternal separation from God. That would be eternal death, not as the cessation of existence, but eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So it's the realization or the exacting of the holiness of God upon sin. And if God just ignored it and didn't do anything about it, he would cease to be holy. he he would violate his own character and god cannot violate his own character it is impossible for god to violate his character because he is thoroughly holy in every regard and sin particularly affects our bodies our bodies right now are affected by it our minds our thinking Our will is drawn away to things that we should not be drawn away to. Our heart and our affections are drawn toward it, every part of us. And even though we were created as good uh, in the sense that we've been created in the image of God, in our fallen nature, sinners by nature, we're impacted by it. And without the redemption that God offers, we would all be helplessly and hopelessly lost. But there's a particular focus about our physical bodies in the scripture that's very important to our understanding, and that's the idea of the flesh. Sarx is the New Testament word for it, speaking of that part of us that is drawn toward sin. I've mentioned this often, but I'll mention it again. I think that Romans chapter seven is not from the perspective of an unbeliever. I think Romans chapter seven is from the perspective of a believer where Paul is saying, this is the reality of the struggle that we find ourselves in. We are in a, an, an epic struggle to do what is right. Even when we know to do what is right. And then we don't do it that's sin. And I think that's coming from the flesh. And when the flesh dominates, we cannot do what is pleasing to God. Romans seven and verse 14 says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into the bondage of sin. Romans seven and verse 23 says, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So Paul's dealing with the problem of the flesh. And Paul speaks of the deeds of the flesh. Remember that picture of contrast that we get in Galatians chapter five. We always jump over to the fruit of the spirit because that's the beautiful part. That's the part we want to exhibit. But before you can get to love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you got to get rid of the deeds of the flesh. Long about verse 19 in Galatians chapter five. This is that contradiction and that contrast that we see in the scripture saying you got to put off the old so that you can put on the new so our minds are affected by sin and paul speaks in romans 8 of the mind that is set on the flesh every part of us impacted by it our wills are affected by sin. Even when we want to do the right thing and we know what the right thing is to do, we still get pulled. And sometimes the world gets a hold of us. Sometimes it is our flesh. Sometimes it is the devil who's trying to influence us through systems and other people and things that we're drawn away by. And we are capable of of both sins of commission and sins of omission. And let me delineate between the two. Sins of commission are the obvious, That's doing what's wrong when you should have been doing what was right. Sins of omission are not doing the right thing, even when you know you should be doing it. And that in reverse is sin as well, because you're not doing what God has said to do. So they both ultimately are sin. They, They both have the same impact on our lives. And in a recently published book, a sociologist, Alan Wolfe, argued that this attitude is widespread among American religious groups and denominations about the lack of the discussion of the very subject. And here's what he says in the situation that we're in. Talk of hell, damnation, and even sin has been replaced by a non-judgmental language of understanding and empathy. Now, how, if you don't understand the problem... Are you going to live toward the solution? How if how you are not seeing the issue of not doing what is wrong and doing what is right? Can you ever walk the path that God wants you to walk? Now, I get it that we want to point toward the deliverance. We, we want to paint the picture of redemption. We, we want to see the beauty of what Christ has done but you got to see the ugliness of the situation so that you can see the deliverance that he offers and our sin creates two problems for us as we stand before god we need to have our sin taken away because we own it it belongs to us but not only do we need to have our sin taken away we need to have a positive righteousness that puts us in right standing with god so we need a solution to the issue but then we need something given to us so that we can be right with God. And here's the major difference between Christianity, which is the teaching of grace, and all the other religions of the world, all of them. Christianity is about what God has done for you, not what you can do for God. Now, what we do for God is in response to what God does for us. But you see the point here. It's not about doing better and trying harder and improving yourself and being your best self and all these things it's about being who god created you to be to begin with so we consider in conclusion some basic ideas that will lead us into the study next week as well we've already talked about the problem of sin but let's talk about the work of christ and what god does in crediting that work to us and the role of faith so in recap, first, because of Adam's fall and then our own personal corruption, we've broken the commandments of God. If we were guilty at one point of the law, then we're guilty of breaking it all. So so we're we're done. We're all in trouble. We're all in the same circumstance. I have no goodness or accomplishment on my own that I could offer up to God which could earn me favor in the sight of God. And even as a Christian, I am still inclined to sin and to evil, and left to myself, I would have no strength and no righteousness and no ability to do right in the sight of God. And I'm able to recognize my sad state of existence when my own conscience bears witness against me and the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then that leads me to the place where I can recognize that Jesus Christ has done for me what I could never have done for myself. This is where the removal of sin comes in. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law of God like nobody else could be. He was the only one who fulfilled the requirements. And in this way, he's the second Adam. That's the thought that that Paul carries on with in in Romans 5 is is that Jesus is the one who has kept the law, who is fully holy in himself, who is perfectly righteous in the light of God's justice. Jesus also satisfied God's justice for sinners who could not help themselves. And although Jesus was perfectly holy and not perfectly or personally liable for the curse visited on sinners, he was willing to take the place of sinners. So so we we got to think about this. And this will help us understand the magnitude of what God has done is that every sin that we have committed or ever will commit was laid on Jesus at the cross. The full brunt of it. And along with it, the wrath of God fell on him because of the judgment that we deserved because jesus willingly obeyed what god told him to do and it's his blood that removes our sins so we go from the predicament to the removal of our sins but then the full understanding of that is the work of christ for justification that becomes effective for sinners by the gift of god So God gives that work of Christ in a very real way. He imputes that work to us. And imputation is not a word that we often use, but it's a word that Paul used to describe what God has done in Romans chapter 4. Imputation is what God does in reckoning or crediting what Christ has done on our behalf. So the simple way that I often say it is, when God sees us redeemed in Christ, forgiven of our sins, he sees us not as the wretched sinners that we were, he sees us through the righteousness of jesus we have been justified declared righteous everything that christ has done for us has been legally credited to our account so now we've not just got the removal of sin now we have the crediting of the full righteousness of jesus to us and obviously this will not be fully realized until we are in heaven with god but it is a done deal in other words justification is not a progressive work as some are trying to teach in our day and any of you follow along theology at all and the whole idea of uh, the the new perspectives on Paul and some of the thinking that goes along with that essentially that's the teaching that's coming out of that that it has more to do with the covenant relationship of God with his people rather than the legal declaration of God on behalf of his people based on what Christ has done and that is a clear teaching of the reformation and the reason it's a clear teaching of the reformation is because it's a clear teaching of the Bible That's what God's word teaches, that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And this leads me to the final point, which will take us into next week. I receive the benefit of what Christ has done for me by faith alone the only way faith is the way in which i look away from myself both from my sin and my way of doing things and i look to christ and i say he's my only hope and he's enough that his work is finished and that faith is trusting in jesus and not trusting in myself I close with this from Oswald Chambers. I, on most days of the week, read My Utmost for His Highest, and I'm continually challenged by it. as part of my devotional time. If you don't, I would encourage you to do so. It's available free online. Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. It's usually just a, it's always just a page and a scripture verse and a thought. Uh, Sometimes it will deeply challenge you, and you have to sit there and read it two or three times. But I want to share this one where he says, uh, where he's writing on complete and effective decision about Sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 is the verse where he says, Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then here's the theme that he talks about, co-crucifixion. He says, Have you made the following decision about sin, that it must completely be killed in you? It takes a long time to come to the point of making this complete and effective decision about sin. It is, however, the greatest moment in your life once you decide that sin must die Not to be restrained or suppressed or counteracted, but crucified. Just as Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world, no one can bring anyone to this point of decision. We may be spiritually and mentally convinced, but what we need to do is actually make the decision that Paul urges us to make in this passage. And he says, this is not something that takes place by divine future expectation on the part of Paul, but was a very radical and definite experience in his life. And then he asks this question. Are you prepared to let the spirit of God search you until you know what the level and nature of sin is in your life to see the very things that struggle against God's spirit in you? And have you entered into the glorious privilege of being crucified with Christ until all that remains in your flesh and your blood is his life? Galatians 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Understanding the doctrine of sin brings us fully into the beauty of the understanding of what God has done in salvation in Christ. And we need to hold on to a strong biblical understanding because it's central to our own spiritual life and it's also central to how we share the good news of jesus with others so that they too can experience god's saving grace and could it be that tomorrow when you go to work that the holy Spirit's gone, going to have gone ahead of you just like he did for that man that brother ben best went to visit could it be that somebody's waiting for you to share the good news and the spirit of god will bring about an eternal change in their lives That'd be my prayer for us, that we would be so faithful to tell the story of what God's done for us, believing that he can change lives eternally. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And when we come into an understanding of your holiness, we are able to see our unrighteousness and our unworthiness, our lost condition. And had you not made the way back for us through Jesus, we would all be helplessly and hopelessly lost. But I thank you that this is not the end of the story. I thank you that Christ was willing to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Help us to be mindful of what it means to be a holy people, to fight against sin, to crucify the flesh and to walk in righteousness, as you've called us to. God, I just want to say thank you for grace. We're so undeserving, and yet you so lavishly blessed us, poured out your love on us, and we're grateful. So bless us now, Lord, as we conclude our study, and we look forward to the next part of this as we see more deeply into the doctrine of salvation and all the significance of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.